Cute, aren't they? Uh, God makes them that way when they're little, so we don't immediately send them to live with other members of our family, right? (laughs) There's nothing like a family welcoming a baby. Such a fraught time. It's so conflicting in your emotions. If you've welcomed a child of your own into the world, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I lived through that experience with my wife twice. When our first son was born, because maybe our obstetrician was not so good at math and certainly because I was overconfident, I happened to be in Rock Hill, South Carolina when her water broke in Huntington Beach, California. Yeah, that's what I said when I hung up the phone. I was scheduled to fly six hours later, but I got a middle-of-the-night call from my best friend for many years who's both a professor and a surfer, and he used the most Californian of words to convey the urgency of the situation. I picked up the phone, middle of the night, and he said, dude. (laughs) And I knew. A single word told the story. Sharice is having our child. He said, dude, I'm at your house. Your wife's water broke. You should come. So I've busied myself with getting there and used for the first time ever and only something they used to put in the back of seat airplanes before we all had cell phones. There was this giant plastic phone embedded in the headrest of the seat in front of you. You remember this? I learned a couple things. It works. And it's very expensive (laughs) and totally worth it. Because on the tarmac at DFW, I was reassured that it looked like I had enough time. And I made it with half an hour to spare with an obstetrics nurse. I mean, I'm running with luggage. And she said, oh, Mr. South Carolina decided to join us. How nice. (laughs) Shamed on the day of my firstborn's birth. Unbelievable, but just so incredibly happy to be there. About three years later, our younger son was being born in Mexico in the same, we're freaked out and happy all at the same time drama played out. I called my dad when we were on the way to the hospital, and he said, I'm on my way. And I said, Dad, the hospital's two miles away. I'm okay. I'm coming to your house right now. Wait for me. I'm going to follow you there in case something happens to your car. So I had a chase car, right? It was, it was great. And that delivery was not immediate either, and that gave me the opportunity to sit with the obstetrician for a few hours while my poor wife suffered, and he and I relaxed. And we had a conversation that I've never forgotten. We discussed the fact that the only people that are happy to go to the hospital are families that are welcoming babies into the world. Nobody else wants to be there. Everybody else is there because they're sick or they're injured. And everybody's trying to stay out of the hospital except for those precious, happy, fear-filled few who are having babies on that day. That's what it's like in the spiritual family as well. Last week and for a few more weeks, we're going to walk around a table that represents the family of God. This is a creative presentation of what the Bible teaches, but make no mistake, these categories are found in Scripture. People are invited and welcomed and called into the family of God out of spiritual death. Jesus said, you must be born again. Just as you were born once physically, you were born dead spiritually with an insensitive heart to God, with a heart that doesn't beat for Him, with a brain that does not seek His thoughts after Him, so you have to be born again. You're moved then, in our analogy, from the dead chair, you're invited to the table, and you're born. And when people are born, we call them babies. Babies. What effect do babies have on the spiritual family? In other words, what are new Christians like? I want to tell you the story of some baby Christians, and in your Bible, I want to show you first how they came into the family of God. I'd love for you to open your Bible first in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, find one near you. If you need a Bible at home, please take it with you. 
If you have somebody that you would like to give a Bible to, maybe a friend or a family member, maybe your child, take as many Bibles with you as you like this morning. The point of having Bibles in the pew is not to keep the Bibles there. It's for them to be opened and read so that people can hear the voice of God. So, toward the back of your New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, this is a letter that Paul wrote Christians in the city of Thessalonica. That's why it has this strange name, 1 Thessalonians, the first letter to the Thessalonians. And when you find that, we're not going to read there just yet, hold your place and turn back 40 or 50 pages to a larger book called Acts, the book of Acts and the 17th chapter. I'm old school. I love to hear pages turning rather than phones chirping. You read the Bible any way you like, but I love to hear Bible pages turning in a church. It's awesome. Everybody got it? All right. Acts 17 tells you the story of how Paul, who previously hated the very idea of Jesus, who thought he was an imposter, who thought the first Christians were deluded fools, who had come to believe in this monstrous myth that a man had died on a cross and risen from the dead. Paul met Jesus personally, and from that point forward, he literally laid down his life. He sacrificed his life going everywhere, places a good, observant Jewish man would never consider going. Paul charged into wicked, pagan places whose names in the ancient world sometimes were synonymous with evil and debauchery, he went everywhere telling everyone he could about this Jesus he had met. He went in Acts 17 to this city called Thessalonica, and we read about how these people came into the family of God in Acts 17 verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. When you're reading the Bible, just stop and ask yourself questions to make sure that you're understanding what you're reading and you're hearing what God has to say in it. So here you have an esteemed teacher of the Hebrew Scriptures who now believes in Jesus. He's going into a foreign city, but there are Jews there, so they've established a synagogue, and Paul uses his leverage as an esteemed teacher of the Word of God, the Hebrew Scriptures, which we today call the Old Testament. He uses that platform to go in and give them a very different kind of message from the Hebrew Scriptures. As I'm going to read to you next, he's going to open up the Scriptures, walk them through it page by page or roll by roll. Look at all the promises, look at all the prophecies, and say, look, Jesus is the one. He is the Christ. That's not a second name for Jesus, that's a title. It means the anointed one. It means the one that God had promised. So, it says he went in for three Sabbaths. So, that means, in our contemporary language, how long must Paul have spent in Thessalonica? Three weeks. Three different Saturdays, he's going into synagogue, right? What's he doing there? Verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, that's the title, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. That goes on for three weeks. Here's the effect. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So, let me ask you. He taught for three weeks. How'd it go? Pretty well, right? A few Jews believed, and many devout Greeks, in other words, Greeks that were going to synagogue, they had come to the point of bankruptcy with their pagan lives and knew that the God of Israel somehow was the true God. They're listening, they're learning. A great number of them believe, and it also says a few prominent women, women who probably were in something like the ancient equivalent of the Chamber of Commerce in Thessalonica. These were influential, notable, successful women in this ancient city. So quite a few people are believing. I won't read you the rest of the story, but there is religious jealousy which leads to a riot, and Paul has to hurry out of town at night 
because it's physically dangerous for him to stay one more day. Now, a few months later, having fled for his life, having been led out of town, because Paul, Paul was the kind of guy who was always going right back into trouble. A few months later, apparently, he writes them this letter, 1 Thessalonians. Look over with me in chapter 1, and we'll start talking about what new Christians are like. Understand, he's writing ordinary people whose names we primarily do not know, who were intersected by the life of Jesus in their weekly worship habit. Their whole lives got turned upside down. Men, women, Jews, and Gentiles, a broad cross-section of ordinary people from the ancient world met Jesus a few months later. Paul writes them this letter, and I want you to hear the parental joy he takes in their faith. Verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. This tells me that they've already organized themselves as a congregation. They are a church, and what that means is an assembly, a group of people that have been called together by God. Listen to his pride. Listen to his joy. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Look over in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. He says, what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Sounds just like a dad that just had a kid. Sounds like a mother who is delighted to have an infant. And she says, this is my joy. This is my life. What Paul is quite literally saying is, when we come to see Jesus, when Jesus calls us to account, what are we going to bring to Him? What are we going to rejoice in? What is our going to be our reward? It's you. Now, again, how, many, how long have these people been Christians? Just a few months, probably. How long did they hear the gospel and teaching from Scripture? From Paul, three weeks. They're babies. They've just gotten started, but they are filling the family with joy. That's what babies do. What else? They're completely alive. They're just not mature. This is an important point, and I need all of you, especially those of you who are new in the faith, to really understand this. I have two sons. The torch is being passed in many ways, including the fact that both of them, even the younger one, is now stronger than I am. That ain't saying much, but let me tell you, at this point, it's not close either. The big one's been stronger than me for a few years. The younger one definitely caught up to me this summer. He has the advantage of two things, youth and he cares. That is a tremendous advantage when it comes to developing strength. <laughs> if you care a little, it helps. Now, let me ask you a silly question. I'm in my 40s. They're 17 and 20. Of the three of us, who is more alive? I didn't ask about health or maturity or strength. I asked, who's more alive? We're all equally alive, right? When you're born into the family of God, you're as alive as you're ever going to be. Here's a mind-blowing concept. Your heavenly Father cannot love you more as you mature. It's not about that. Many of us were born into, thank God I wasn't, but many people were born into broken, dysfunctional families that consciously or unconsciously sent this message to their kids. I'm going to love you if you behave. You live up to this standard, then you'll be accepted. Then you'll be loved. You'll be cherished. Your heavenly Father is perfect. His love for you starts out perfectly and remains perfect always and at all times. He rejoices as much and loves just as much the person who just prayed in a moment of humility and asked Jesus to be their Savior. He loves them completely, perfectly, and absolutely just as much as he did the Apostle Paul at the height of his spiritual strength and maturity. There is no difference. 
They are equally alive in Christ. In fact, the love of God is so spectacular that it goes beyond and starts long before we ever knew Him. Here's what Paul wrote the church at Rome. God demonstrates His own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, do you know the rest of this? What happened? When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Long before you were looking for God, when God was the farthest thing from your mind, when He had nothing to do with your thoughts, your emotions, your plans, when you treated Him with nothing but indifference, maybe even contempt, even then God loves you, and that love does not change. It does not grow. It is simply and always perfect. And it's important, it's vitally important, I believe, for baby Christians to understand that because Many people think, I have to grow up, I have to learn and grow more so that God will accept me. No, He already does. That's why you're in the family. Your birth into the family of God was His doing, His work, His sacrifice. He invited you. He called you. You answer, you're in the family, and you're just as completely alive and loved as you're ever going to be, but you're not as strong as He wants you to be. You're not as wise as He wants you to be. You're not as loving and as kind as He wants you to be. This is true physically and spiritually. uh, Babies in a family are as loved, in a good family, or as loved as anyone else, but how strong are infants after all? What can they do for themselves? Nothing. How wise are they? Does anybody turn to the nine-month-old for guidance? In turn, in a heated family discussion, turn to the baby seat and say, well, what do you think, Billy? (laughs) Nobody's looking to him for guidance, but they're helping him in a loving family. They're helping him to learn and to grow so that maturity, strength, wisdom, kindness, love, courage, all the things that represent maturity can be developed in that person who is completely alive, completely loved, just not yet grown up. You see, in the physical world, we all have limits set upon us at birth. Americans don't like to think this way because we created this culture that anybody can do anything they please. No, everybody's entitled to try anything they please, but we can't all be anything we want to be. Simple proof. I was never a threat to be a player in the National Football League. That genetic ceiling was set for me at birth. There's just no chance. Even if I cared, there's not enough genetic material here to ever make me strong and fast enough to play on that level. It's just, it was never going to happen. Spiritually speaking, that's not so. Why? Because you're God's child. You have, if you'll follow the analogy, you have His spiritual DNA. You can be as much like your heavenly Father, you can be as much like His Son, Jesus Christ, your older brother in the family of God, you can be as much like Jesus as you care to be. In fact, the whole point of spiritual maturity is God is fashioning you into the image of the one who saved you. So what is Jesus like? Is Jesus kind? impossibly, humblingly kind. Is He loving? Absolutely. Is He courageous? More than any of us ever have been. And you grow in His likeness, and your life, which is already complete, and your love from God, which is already absolute, grows into maturity. You don't have a spiritual ceiling. It is literally unlimited because you are God's child. I tell this story with his permission. When my younger son was eight years old, he was given an assignment in Mrs. Davis's third grade Liberty Christian class to write a paper on his role model. It was an Olympic year, which is why I, was, I didn't know who he had chosen. We're driving away from school one day. I look in the rear view, and I said, how's that paper going anyway? He goes, I finished it. Really, who'd you write it on? Who's your role model? He said, Usain Bolt. If you don't know who Usain Bolt is, he's the greatest sprinter that's ever lived. He holds the world record in the 100 meters, the fastest man ever alive. And I said, my feelings were a little bit hurt. (laughs) And I said, son, 
explain that to me. I said, you've got wonderful men and women, two generations back on both sides of your family. Your uncle is an American war hero, and you chose Usain Bolt? Why? Because I want to be the fastest kid in the world. And I said, never going to happen. <laughs> Just like that. He said, what? I go, never going to happen. I go, there's 100 kids in Jamaica, six years old, who are already two times faster than you are. <laughs> this is never going to happen. I know. You're shaking your head like this is a terrible thing. <laughs> and he said, well, I'm almost as fast as you. And I said, exactly. That's my point. <laughs> if you had talent, you'd be faster than me already. One of the surprises of our family is how far my boys pushed the ceiling that I gave them. But ever since then, don't you worry, he got his vengeance ever since. Anytime he struggled or failed in any kind of athletic competition in all the sports he played, once he recovered from that, he'd say, you know, Dad, I think I could have brought it home if you hadn't crushed my dreams when I was in third grade. <laughs> he had a ceiling. So do you, but only on this earth. You can be as godly, you can be as Christ-like, you can be as generous, kind, loving, forgiving, faithful, holy, peaceful, righteous as you care to be because your heavenly Father has provided in you all the spiritual life and every spiritual resource you need. This was Paul's mission. Look at what it says in Colossians 1.28. Paul says regarding regarding his life's work, read this with me. He wrote, speaking of Jesus, we proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul's assumption is that every Christian can grow to maturity in Jesus. He says, I'm not working with the select few. I'm pouring my life out. Now, he's only one person. He's working with others. He is training disciple-makers. In other words, he is multiplying his life and the life of others, but it all boils down to this individual effort. We proclaim Jesus. We don't have a religious agenda. We're not bringing our own ideas. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom for this reason, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What does Jesus want for you? He wants you to look like him. He wants you, over time, one spiritual meal at a time, one spiritual habit at a time, one spiritual decision at a time, to grow into the likeness of Jesus and to live out and walk out in ordinary life on a Tuesday at your high school or on your job to look and act like Jesus. This is what spiritual maturity is. What do children need to make that happen? They need love and care from other Christians. Just like a baby in the, uh, in the physical realm does, so do baby Christians. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. We're going to read a long paragraph where Paul is going to explain to them how parental he was in his short relationship with this, these people to try to give them the life and the maturity of Jesus. Verse 7 is a shockingly intimate image, in fact. Paul wrote, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Wow. Paul has spiritual authority. He has spiritual power that is actually, when it's used in other contexts, is actually awe-inspiring. But Paul says, we were gentle. We took care of you like a nursing mother takes care of her own kids. Verse 8. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Verse 8 is a shocking verse, because Paul says, not only the gospel. Well, that's a surprising phrase, because the gospel is the message and the work of God, that God, for love of sinners, sent His Son to be born to live a righteous life, to be killed on a Roman cross, to be buried in a grave, and to rise from the dead three days later, just as both the Scriptures and Jesus Himself had promised, so that anyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. That's the good news. That's the gospel. 
So why on earth, if that is the central message that God has for humanity, the death, burial, and resurrection of His own Son to save us and to bring us into God's family, why does Paul say we wanted to give you not only the gospel, but also our own lives, also our own selves? Because you can proclaim the gospel and not give anything of yourself. I'm doing it right now in a way. I just shared with you very briefly what the good news from God to humanity is. How closer are we in our personal relationship? Nothing happened. I just broadcast a message. You can stand aloof from people. You can just keep broadcasting and proclaiming to them good news and refuse to give yourself. But Paul knows better. If all you give is the gospel, it is unlikely that that person will grow spiritually, at least through your influence. Because we don't grow at distance. We grow up close. That's why Paul said we were like a nursing mother. We, wanted, we loved you so much, we wanted to give you not only the gospel, but also our lives. Look at verse 9. He goes on. Listen to how much this sounds like a hardworking single mom or a hard-toiling dad living his life and sacrificing it a day at a time for his kids. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory." We didn't, we had a right to, Paul says elsewhere, but we didn't take any offering for you. We taught you all day and stayed up all night working so that no one could ever accuse us of being in it for the money or we didn't want to put any burden on you. We gave our whole lives for as long as we could for this single reason. We wanted you to know God. And Paul changes the image, if you'll notice, he changes the image in verse 7. He says, we were like a father with his children. And the words that follow in verse 12 are a lot more intense than the nursing mother being described. We encouraged you, we exhorted each one of you, we encouraged you, and we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. That reminds me of my dad every time I read that. Because when I would walk in a manner, when I would act and behave in a manner unworthy of our family, dad came down just like that on the basis of two things. You're a Christian, and you're my son. And boy, did I hear this. We're garners. We don't act that way. That may be your mother, but you need to know something, son. Before she was your mother, she, she was and is my wife, and I will stop, Dad, stop. I get it, you know. I'm ready for the invitation. I'm ready to come down the aisle, and this come to Jesus talk is definitely working. Don't finish that sentence. I'm scared. What was he doing? He was exhorting, he was charging, he was insisting is another way of translating that word. What is Paul giving to other believers? Everything he has and anything they need so long as they will grow. And here's a word for our church. Cross point, when families no longer want to mess with babies, when they no longer want to give love and care to new Christians, at that point churches start to die. Maybe you're back in church, but barely, because when you were a newer Christian and didn't know how to act or didn't know the customs, someone tore your head off in the name of Jesus. Anybody ever have that experience? We've had it here. I've seen it in other churches. Somebody legitimately doesn't know how to behave because they're new in the family of God, and they come in and act or say or do something, wear something that some older Christian doesn't think is appropriate, and they go up one side and down the other and spit the kid out all for the glory of God, of course. Anybody have that experience? You were in the hands, if so, you were in the hands of an older Christian who was not a mature Christian because a mature Christian doesn't treat younger believers in the faith that way. They see them doing things that do not reflect God or themselves well, and they admonish them and they encourage them in love because they want to help them grow. How do new Christians grow? New Christians grow by God's design only when one thing happens, when other family members share with them. 
What are they sharing? Well, they're sharing first and primarily the truth of God. They are sharing the truth of God in all areas of life. Look back in chapter 1, verse 9. Paul says, regarding the reputation of the Corinthians in their region, they themselves, people around you, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Watch their salvation experience in one phrase. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's conversion. That's the 180 that brings somebody into the family of God. Look at it with me carefully. Paul says, you turned from what? Idols. Now, you may have never bowed in front of an idol, as many cultures do, but it's very uncommon here in the West. But whatever stands between you and God, whatever you're living for instead of God, that's an idol to you. Americans rarely fashion physical idols and bring images that they bow down to in their homes. Many cultures do. I grew up around it, seeing it. Many cultures do that. The American idols can't be seen. They are things like success and pleasure and significance and financial achievement and the acceptance and the love and the praise of others. If those things mean to you more than God, then you're living for that thing, which is called an idol. Paul says, when the gospel came to you, everybody's talking about how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. What baby Christians need most and first is truth. About what? About everything. We're living and swimming in a culture filled with half-truths and outright lies. Outside of God's knowledge of the world He made and the way it works and what makes life good in it, we're being lied to about everything. Sex and money and pleasure and marriage and friendship and family relationships and work, everything around it has been shot through with lies. What do baby Christians need? They need to learn the truth in those areas. They also need to establish new habits with God and His family. And here at the end, as he always does, Paul gets very personal with these baby Christians. Look with me in 1 Thessalonians 5. And I'll just walk you through a simple way of reading the Bible that they experience and that you can experience tomorrow when you open your Bible again. Here's Paul sharing new habits, new things that they need to be doing with God and his family. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. We'll read it together. Would you read that with me? It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Three simple instructions. Most common question I'm asked as a pastor, Bruce, how do I know the will of God for my life? Here it is. This isn't all of it, but this is explicitly God's will for your life. Now, remind yourself, how long did Paul have with these people? Three weeks. And he wrote them this letter apparently just a few months later. But they're already alive. Their reputation of loving Jesus and enduring persecution for it like he did is already spreading. Now, he says, now that you're in the family, here's how we live in God's family. First of all, we always rejoice. Hey, can I just ask you, how'd you do with that this week? You went to work, right? You went to school, whatever you're doing, right? If you're a retiree, maybe you did some volunteering, you were certainly in your neighborhood, you dealt with your family. Would people say that you were just brimming with joy all week? That wasn't a rhetorical question. That was a, that was a question that actually invited reflection and, and admission. Were you bursting with joy? If you weren't, maybe you're not as mature as you thought you were, because this is how we live in the family. Now, I'm reading this, and understand, it's kicking me in the side of the head, because I'm far more known for ranting and griping than I am for joy. Maybe I'm not as mature as I thought I was. Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances. How, how'd your week go? Now, you can't be thankful at every single moment, but was your week in all of its ups and downs, was it characterized by overflowing gratitude? 
That's a sign of maturity. That's how God wants us to live. How about praying? Were you in continual touch with your Father? Did you wake up in the morning and say, Lord, good morning. Thank you for saving me. I'm available. Where are we going? That's a personal relationship. God speaks to you through His Word. You're given the privilege of talking back to Him in prayer. There is an actual conversation that goes on, and Paul says, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Here's some other instruction from a different apostle from Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. Read this with me. It says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Let's stop right there. That is the old life, Peter says, get rid of it. You used to be deceitful, get rid of it. Put it off. If you've been hypocritical, stop it, get rid of it. Kill off envy, kill off all slander. Here's the central instruction. This matters so much. This is the habit above all others that has to be established in the life of a baby Christian that will mark their change from babies into growing mature children. It has to do with children eating and receiving and being self-feeders from what God has said. Read the rest of it with me. Peter said, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the Word so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. If there's been a moment in your life, Peter says, where you have had an encounter with God and you tasted His goodness, you know He's good, you know He's a Savior, here's what you do now. You desire the pure milk of His Word. Our groups are going to study more deeply exactly how you can teach yourself to desire something. Here's a hint. If you don't desire what God tells you is good, you go to Him humbly in prayer and say to Him, teach me to desire what is good for me. Change my heart. Change what I want. And then you go and eat anyway. How many times have you had this experience? I'm not hungry, but you have the first bite and suddenly you're famished. That's how it works with the Word of God. Sometimes I open Scripture simply on the simple knowledge and conviction based on experience and what God has already taught me that I need this. I don't feel like it. I don't desire it at that moment. I'm tired. I'm self-interested. I'm worried. But because I know what God has said and I know what God has done in the past, I go and I make myself available anyway, and I open His Word and I say, God, I don't really want to be here and I'm ticked and worried about several things, but here I am. And he starts speaking, and I want more and more of it. That's why Peter said, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the Word for this reason. Through the pure milk, the good food of God's Word, you may grow up into your salvation. God has already saved you. Now you're going to grow up into it. What happens in a family's life if they have a healthy newborn, but that newborn refuses to feed? What does the family do? Anything and everything to get that kid on the breast. They have lactation consultants, one of the most strange things in the world. A complete stranger is coming in and having this most intimate, private of discussion to teach this young, frightened mother, here's how to get this baby to latch and to start feeding. And there is such joy, if a family has struggled with that, there is such joy in that family when finally the child has a proper appetite. What happens in the spiritual world? People look at people who say they're Christians who have absolutely no appetite to hear from God, and people think it's normal. It's not. It stunts growth. If there's life at all, it stunts and delays growth. Some people are well beyond what God intended and what God could do simply because they will not feed on the good, pure milk of His Word. And I'm going to be very, very practical. Too many times I have failed to tell you for whatever reason, including my own stupidity, 
to tell you how vitally important it is for you above all things to hear from God yourself in Scripture. And you look at this big book. It is a big book, isn't it? Well, I didn't go to seminary. No, you didn't. That's fine. It might even be good. But your heavenly Father loves you, and He loved you so much that He put it in writing. And someone, I can teach you in just a few minutes and give you a very simple plan for you to start reading with all your questions and talking to God in prayer so that you actually hear His voice. And day by day, meal by meal, you grow. Another thing I've done wrong is many times telling you to do something without giving you a simple plan to do it. Over here by the cross and at the exit underneath the clock is a very simple, the simplest Bible reading plan I've yet found. I just discovered it this week in this study retreat I was doing. It invites you to read five days a week, two or three chapters a day. It'll take you right through the Bible without reading the entire Bible. It'll take you through the heart of each book. So I thought, I think we can read more than that. Be my guest. But you know what I read in every survey? That most Christians don't read Scripture. They don't hear the voice of God on their own, except when they go to church. If that's your situation, here's kind of the word picture. Hearing from God once a week and somebody else explains that this is vitally important. This was commanded by God. We're told explicitly to do this and not give up on it, as many Christians are starting to do. Many Christians are attending, even faithful Christians are attending less often to worship, and in doing so, they're disregarding what God says. But if this is all you do, as important as this is, this is like someone walking into the nursery and spraying the babies with milk. And they'll get some nutrition, but it won't be nearly enough. What would you expect with children who were fed once a week? The people who were doing that to them would go to jail, and rightfully so. What marks the trip out of the baby chair? When you start hearing God's voice on your own, you learn how to do it, and you become a self-feeder, which is a great day in a family's life, right? When the kid starts reaching for the food himself, now we have to be careful with what exactly he can reach. But we're so happy he's feeding himself. If the child is not feeding himself, we've got a problem, and we need to do something about it. Before we're done... Another thing I like about this reading plan, and I really encourage you to pick it up if you don't have one already, let's memorize verse 2 together. It starts with, like newborn infants, okay? Verse 2 is this, like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the Word so that you may grow up into your salvation. That's it. You can read and learn and memorize one whole verse of God's Word this morning. You can We'll do it right now. Let's read that together. 1 Peter 2, 2. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the Word so that you may grow up into your salvation. That's all of verse 2. Again, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the Word so that you may grow up into your salvation. Once more. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the Word so that you may grow up into your salvation. You say, it's hard for me to memorize. Here's a tip. Picture it. Picture a baby. Picture milk. Picture that child growing up. Ready? Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the Word, so that you may grow up into your salvation. You've got it. Close your eyes and say it. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the Word, so that you may grow up into your salvation. Prove that you know it. Turn to the person next to you and say it to them. All right, I hear applause. Come on back. You got it? We're going to go back to this next week, so be ready. Ready? 1 Peter 2.2, 2. like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the Word 
so that you may grow up into your salvation. Congratulations. You just hid a small portion of God's Word in your heart. And the psalmist says, I have hid your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's how you grow. This is what it looks like, folks. This is what it looks like. What else do new believers, do Christians share with baby Christians? I already told you, they share their lives. 1 Thessalonians 2.8 says this, We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. What God has been doing for three years at Crosspoint, why we're returning to this Table Talk series, is to share a very simple truth. People don't grow so much in rows like we are here this morning. This is commanded, this is important, but it is not the primary catalyst for spiritual growth and growing up in maturity in Christ. People grow better in circles than they do in rows. They grow life on life. They grow shoulder to shoulder. They grow heart to heart. This format is vitally important, but it is not sufficient for you to share life, love, burdens, needs, prayers, dreams with other Christians. That's why Paul said we wanted to give you not just the gospel, but also our own lives. Here's what that pathway can look like at Crosspoint. We worship God together on the weekend. We find community and friendship in a smaller group of people. We invest deeply in disciple-making. That's happening at Crosspoint in one-on-one conversations that meet once a week. It's going by God's grace to continue to grow so that more and more people are growing in individual relationships where burdens can be shared, where specific questions can be answered, and one older brother or sister in the family can teach another how to follow Jesus and save them some time because God has already taught that older person. And then we make the ultimate show of maturity by going to serve people beyond our walls. Mature, loving families do not live for themselves. They live for others. They make their life count beyond what happens in their individual home. So it must be here because, church, in God's family, life and truth always come through another person. If you're in the family of God, it's because a person loved you. His name is Jesus. And you heard of Jesus because another human being, perhaps your family, perhaps a friend, brought you to church, told you about Jesus, challenged you with a question, started reading Scripture with you, talked to you over coffee, and what you have is one human being, one person introducing another to the only one who can save, who is Jesus Christ. That's what we're about. My specific prayer is that God will activate a culture of disciple-makers at Crosspoint. And not only within the organized ministries of our church, but specifically in our families so that moms and dads can get at least one step ahead of their kids and teach their own children how to follow Jesus. Let me be very specific and very clear. If you delegate your disciple-making responsibility as a Christian to the local church, you're highly increasing the likelihood that they will walk away from God in a few years. We just don't have the relational closeness, and we do not have the time and the trust that you do as mom and dad. And most moms and dads, particularly the dads, feel intimidated by that and say, I don't know how to do that. Dad, listen, to lead your family, to lead your children, you only have to be one step ahead. You don't have to be a mile ahead of them. You don't have to have a PhD in theology and Bible. You can meet with God desperately and say, God, I don't know myself, but I've got this little reading plan. And Bruce says, it's okay. So here I am to hear your voice. Help me, teach me. And then you go back to your children and you teach them the simple things that God has taught you. How many times? Day after day after day. It's like this. You don't remember too many of the meals you've eaten in your life. You've eaten thousands of meals. You may remember six of them. Highlight meals at great restaurants or home-cooked feasts that lodge in your memory. How are you alive and strong if you don't remember the meals? Because you just kept eating them. And they fed you and they nourished you and here you are. And that's the way it works. In God's family, life and truth always come through another person. So let's get started. My specific prayer is that God would raise up disciple-makers 
And just as importantly, raise up a few more people like those I talked to after the first service who said, I've been in church all my life, but I got problems. I'm stuck. I don't know how to, I don't know what to do next. That's a wonderful, beautiful, sacred conversation. Let's talk. Let's get you started and let's grow together. Let's pray right now. I don't do this often, but I want to this morning. I want to ask very specifically if there are any of you here this morning who have been hearing and considering Jesus for weeks, months, or years, but you haven't ever personally, humbly turned to Him and made Him your Savior and your boss. If that hasn't happened, I've told you the good news. He died for sinners. He died for sin to save you. You can walk out of here knowing Him personally as your Savior, if only you will humbly turn to Him. Would you do that now? If you're ready to take that step, to humbly throw yourself on Jesus and say, Jesus, save me, could I just invite you? This is the rare part. Could I ask you to raise your hand and identify that? I get it. I'm crossing the line of faith today. I don't get it all, but I know I need a Savior, and I am asking Jesus specifically and personally today to save me. Anyone like that here this morning? Would you put your hand up, please? Yes, thank you. Anyone else? If you do, whether you raised your hand or not, just a simple personal favor, take that card in your connection. Take that little connection card in your bulletin and fill it out. Tell us where you are. Tell us the step you've taken. We're not just going to put it in a file. We want to talk to you. We want to make sure that you understand. If you have any questions, we want to help guide you. That's what people do in the family of God. I can't personally do it for everyone, but I'd like to. And what I certainly can do is put you in a smaller group of people, introduce you to someone who can help you grow and accelerate the spiritual growth you've been longing for and that God has for you. Father, these these commitments, these decisions, this worship, and this financial offering that we're giving now is for you in the name of Jesus. This is one of those marks of maturity. Baby Christians don't quickly take to this. It takes more growth. It takes more maturity to take you seriously and to become a giver. Bless all who give. Bless those who are giving small, small things and with great fear. Help us all to grow in whatever area is needful. Thank you that you are the Father who knows all the kids. Unite us in relationships and in love so that we may grow in the likeness of Christ, so that we may all help each other arrive at that beautiful Jesus-like maturity. Receive this offering, these connection cards filled with decisions or questions, whatever your people have for you. We give it to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.